America was founded predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly by Christians who wanted to build this Christian nation on the foundation of God's will. And furthermore, these men believed that the future success of our country depended upon our fidelity to the Christian beliefs. And that's why we can say, though it's politically incorrect to do so, we say without hesitation or apology that America was founded as a Christian nation. In 2018, Robert Jeffers, a megachurch pastor at First Baptist Dallas, Fox News commentator and talk show host, and evangelical advisor and supporter of President Trump, delivers an impassioned 45-minute sermon titled, America is a Christian Nation. Turns out, the support of that cheering congregation is not isolated. In December 2018, Winthrop University in South Carolina conducted a poll in 11 southern states about attitudes and differences among voters. And one question had to do with the subject of Jeffers' sermon. When pollsters asked adults to indicate whether they agreed or disagreed with this statement, America was founded as an explicitly Christian nation, pollsters discovered 51% agreed, while 37% disagreed. And at the heart of the question is the intent of the founders. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore how beliefs shape our world. In this episode, we take a closer look at the religious beliefs and attitudes of the founders. We are revisiting my conversation with Catherine Brakus, a professor of the history of religion in America at Harvard University. We kick off our conversation with a question about the Christian beliefs of the Founding Fathers. To say that the Founding Fathers identified as Christian is, I think, a little bit of a simplified version of their beliefs. So first, when I'm talking about the Founders, I'm talking about the major figures like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. There are some historians who, um, when they're speaking about the Founders, they speak more broadly about, for example, all the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And there, I think you find a huge diversity of belief. But I think the the most striking thing about the founders is that most of them had been influenced by Enlightenment ideas. They were well-educated men, elite men, and they were not traditional Christians. Many of them belonged to churches. George Washington, for example, went to an Anglican church. But they had an understanding of uh, God that was more like what we call deism, the idea that there is a creator, but the creator is somewhat removed from everyday life, as if God is, is a clockmaker who sets the world in motion and doesn't usually interfere, for example, in response to personal prayer. So most of the founders, as elite men of their age, 
were influenced by the Enlightenment, and they were certainly not what we would call today evangelical Christians who believed that they'd had a born-again experience or who viewed the Bible as um, literally and absolutely true in every word. It was interesting to me that you highlighted prayer. Sounds like if you're a deist, prayer is not something you would often invoke. Well, some of them did. So this is interesting. Um, I think the founders were uh, conflicted about whether God would answer individual prayers or not, um, or whether God had a plan for the world that humans were participating in. One of the most famous examples of a founding father turning to prayer is Benjamin Franklin, who at the time when there were debates about the Constitutional Convention and the delegates seemed to be deadlocked, he suggested that perhaps they should start with a prayer every day and ask God for help. Uh, this was somewhat out of character for Franklin. That particular story about Franklin calling for prayer has been a story that's been repeated by some of the people today who claim that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. I think of somebody, for example, like David Barton. Some of those uh, uh, contemporary Christians have argued that Franklin's call for prayer was a sign that the United States was, in fact, founded on Christian principles, um, and they claim that it was because Franklin was calling for prayer that God, in fact, intervened and that all of the dissent that characterized the Constitutional Convention was resolved. And there are some members of the Christian right today who would say that the Constitution is an inspired document, that it was inspired by God, and so that it has the same kind of status as the Bible. Um, what they don't usually tell you is that when Franklin suggested that the Constitutional Convention open with prayer, that his motion was tabled, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, it never actually happened. But there's a moment of you know somebody, Franklin, who seemed to be skeptical in some ways, falling back on some traditional beliefs at a, a moment when he thought the nation was, was really um, in, in peril. As a historian, when you, you've looked at the religion of the Founding Fathers, how, how do you assess the claim that you just cited, that the United States was founded on Christian principles and is a Christian nation? So I think it's important to distinguish between saying that at the time of the Revolution and, and the founding of the Republic, that most Americans were Christian, and the claim that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. Um, the first part is absolutely true. Most Americans in the 18th century, if they define themselves as religious at all, would identify their religion as some kind of actually Protestantism, not even Catholicism. The term Christian was really a synonym for Protestant in the late 18th century. The term Christian nation suggests something more, um, as if the nation was founded to be officially Christian or that Christianity should enjoy special political and legal privileges. That clearly is not what the founders envisioned. But they did understand that most Americans at the time the nation was created were um, uh, were Christian in, in terms of their identification. 
you say with a tr- certainty that that's not what they intended. How how is that reflected in the work that they did and in the founding documents? So the key text is the First Amendment. Um, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This was really dramatic. It was it was suggesting that um, people were free to believe anything they wanted or not to believe. The second part of the First Amendment says um, that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So this is the other piece. Um, the founders wanted people to be free to practice any religion that they wanted, um, and they wanted to make sure that people were free to practice their religion in a nation that didn't privilege any particular church over another. So one of the famous documents from uh, from the founding period is George Washington's letter to Jews in Newport, uh, which he wrote in 1790, where he assured them that they would always enjoy liberty of conscience, that in the new nation they were not going to be discriminated against. So when I say that America was not founded as a Christian nation, it's these kinds of documents that I'm thinking of, where the founders were very careful to create a system in which religious freedom was um, highly valued. What do we know about the public and private religious beliefs of some of the early presidents? Many of the founders, even though they believed in God, they were not certain that Jesus should be understood as part of the Trinity. The Trinity meaning that God is three in one, uh, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. Adams denied the Trinity, and he denied the divinity of Christ. So he thought Christ was an admirable figure to be emulated, but he did not think that Christ had been God. Um, This, of course, put him outside of the pale of most Christians at the time, who, who would have said, in fact, that Jesus is, um, is part of the Godhead. So this is, this is one of the reasons that I say that when, when you hear contemporary Christians suggesting that the founders were uh, deeply Christian, it overlooks the fact that one of the core tenets of Christianity, the belief in the divinity of Jesus, was not held by many of the founders. When Franklin was pressed on the question about Jesus, um, who was Jesus, um, uh, he gave a funny response. He, he wrote, It is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, that sounds unlikely, and think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. <laughs> so he was, he was close to death, and so he says, soon I'm going to know whether... Um, Jesus is divine or not, but I've never really thought about this very much, and I'm not going to trouble myself. You can tell that the founders were um, aware of the fact that their beliefs in many cases were out of step with the majority of Americans, who, or at least many Americans. Uh, this, this is a tricky question just in terms of what did Americans believe at the time of the founding? Church membership rates were not very high. Maybe 20% of the population was going to church. But I think um, what makes this a difficult question is even if people were not attending church regularly, they were surrounded by 
Christian messages. Most people learned how to read by reading the Bible. But I, I think the reason that Franklin, Jefferson, Adams uh, were all reluctant to say too much publicly about their beliefs is that they knew that um, some members of the American public would be scandalized by their questions about the divinity of Jesus. As a historian, um, looking at this chapter in, 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 our, in our nation's history, how did the Founding Fathers debate slavery? And what is it and how is it that, that religious beliefs played into that debate? There were uh, significant debates about the morality of slavery within Christian churches in the late 18th century. Some denominations, for example, the Methodists and the Baptists, were initially against slavery. Um, You know, in the 1780s and 1790s, they were uh, suggesting that their members should free the slaves. But they eventually had to make a choice, and they had to choose whether they wanted to be pure and resist slavery, in which case their churches would have been quite small, or whether they wanted more power and um, they wanted larger churches, and uh, they thought they would be able then to affect change through their power. And so both the Methodists and the Baptists in the South ended up Uh, supporting slavery. I think we can see within Christianity today the ongoing effects of that. Most churches are still segregated. Uh, Whites and blacks worship separately. And there is, I think, still in many Christian churches uh, a refusal to reckon with the the sin of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries. That was Catherine Breckis, professor of the history of religion in America at Harvard Divinity School. Up next, we look at the faith of the presidents as the United States descended into civil war and then tested its growing power abroad. This is Inspired. We'll be back after this break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Amber Kahn. The religious landscape in the United States is far more diverse, multi-faith, and unaffiliated than it has ever been. Yet, that religious diversity has hardly touched the presidency. Every American president has been Christian, but only one American president so far has been Catholic. So that's one thing to note about the diversity of religious belief, that still the vast, overwhelming majority of presidents have been some kind of a Protestant Christian. And within that category, there's great diversity. That is Heather Curtis. And I'm the chair and associate professor in the Department of Religion at Tufts University. She joined us to talk about the faith of U.S. presidents from the mid-19th through the early 20th century. During this period, the United States endured many conflicts, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, and World War I. How did America's dominant culture at the time view country and faith? Many Protestants within the United States actively constructed the idea that the United States was a Christian nation, and by that they meant explicitly an Anglo-Protestant nation as well. This idea that America is a Christian nation would persist, and political leaders would continue to invoke the divine, particularly in times of crisis. That brings us to perhaps the nation's greatest crisis, the Civil War, and the president who brought the country through it. Abraham Lincoln, though, approached his religious life rather differently than his predecessors. So Lincoln is raised in a very traditional Christian home. He grows up reading the scriptures. But unlike almost all of his predecessors, he never formally joins a church. He doesn't feel able to make a profession of faith that's required to become a member in a church. However, he's very biblically literate. Um, He attends church while he's president. Both the Union and the Confederacy put forth distinct ideas of God's plan for America. This is a time when, again, visions of what a Christian nation looks like are in direct competition. You have northern ministers in during the Civil War, such as Henry Ward Beecher. He's one of the most famous preachers in the country, proclaiming that God is on the side of the Union for a righteous cause of maintaining a unified nation and also liberating African Americans from slavery. On the other hand, you have southern ministers arguing that southern states are like the Israelites that are being led out of slavery in Egypt, that they're being oppressed by a um, imperialistic north, and that God is liberating them and, and having them help to maintain the divine institution of slavery, which they see in many ways as a paternalistic institution that's helping to care for African Americans. But in this moment, when Lincoln could have pronounced that God favored the Union, he did not. Abraham Lincoln, I think most famously, argues that God is on neither side in the Civil War, right? That there, there's, that if anything, the Civil War is a judgment on the nation, on both sides. And so he refuses to take a vision of God being on one side or the other, but seeing all of the nations as underneath God's judgment. Curtis says Lincoln's complicated relationship to religion is indicative of the personal tragedies he suffered in life. His son died while he was in office, and that this really did provoke a sort of crisis of faith for Lincoln. He had a kind of humility about making specific sorts of claims about where God was acting in history or through him or through policy that was relatively rare in his time period. 
And I think Lincoln was curious and, and interested to see where God might be at work, but always hesitant to commit himself to a particular pronouncement about God was doing and had a lot of questions and uncertainties having experienced tremendous loss in his own life from his son and the illness of his wife. So the mysteries of God's providence were very real to him on a deeply personal level, but also on a national policy level as well. In the decades after the Civil War, the United States turned its attention beyond its borders. There, too, the faith of the presidents helped shape American history. Curtis is also the author of Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid. In her book, she describes the religious roots of U.S. imperialism in the late 19th century. Many of the protagonists of my book were arguing that the way the United States needed to be a Christian nation was to to be different from other empires and to create not a political form of imperialism or an economic form of imperialism by taking colonies the way that Great Britain had an empire, vast empire in India at the time and colonies in other in Africa. And the argument was that as a Christian nation, the newest Christian nation, the United States could chart a different path. And part of the argument was the way to do that was to be uh, the most humanitarian nation in the world, to provide aid to countries in need as opposed to taking territory. When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, William McKinley, a Methodist, was president. In contrast to many of his predecessors, he was known to reject a strong separation between church and state. He felt it was the duty of America to spread Christianity and Western values worldwide. So the Spanish-American War happens when Cuba is beginning to rebel against Spanish rule. This was cut off for American Protestants in the idea that Spain was a particular kind of colonial power. It was a Catholic colonial power that kept its people sort of enthralled in false religion and uh, a lack of education of the populace. So the idea was some Americans were advocating the best way to be a Christian nation is to help subjugated people throw off the yoke of tyranny. McKinley was very resistant to that at first and did not want to get involved in the Spanish-American War. Some of the figures I study also agreed it was better to just give humanitarian aid to Cuban civilians that were suffering under Spanish military dictatorship. But eventually, the United States is drawn into that war and then quickly wins the military victories against Spain. And then the question comes up what to do about Spain's former colonies, including the Philippines. So at this point, there's a lot of questions. So what does a Christian nation look like now? And one of the arguments that's put forward is to be a Christian empire is to take care of these former subjects of Spanish colonialism and introduce them to a more civilized, more enlightened form of Protestant, capitalist, democratic rule. This belief that Protestantism was an enlightened form of Christianity is connected to a long history of anti-Catholicism in the United States. This is reflected by the fact that, as we discussed earlier, there has only been one Catholic president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, who was elected in 1960. 
in the 1890s, there's a lot of fear um, and fear mongering about the role of Catholics on the world stage. And the idea is that the only people that can't be tolerated in a religious republic are Catholics because they're loyal in that in that context to a foreign prince. So there's anxiety that Catholics are loyal to the Pope. Therefore, they are participants in an, uh, more of an, a hierarchical authoritarian religious structure that doesn't teach people to think for themselves. So therefore, it's not democratic, and it's not rational and enlightened. Um, And at the time, there's a a concern that that kind of lack of self-mastery and agency also leads people to not be as economically productive. And in order to be economically productive in a capitalist society, you have to exercise self-control and rationality. And so all of these things are melded in with the vision of white American Protestantism that is supposed to be the model for a globally productive world. Curtis says anti-Catholicism in the U.S. played a significant role in McKinley's plan to westernize the Philippines. And so the United States will bring this into Spain's former colonies who are now economically backward, religiously under a form of tyranny and haven't develop the capacity for self-government under Catholic rule. So that's the idea that Christianization, civilization, and certain forms of capitalist commerce all go hand in hand. And it's the United States' responsibility to bring what are considered, from their point of view, these blessings to regions of the world. McKinley praise about this. He sends a commission to investigate in the Philippines who want to have independence and in fact, in fact, declared their own independence, but the United States isn't recognizing it. And McKinley claims to have had an answer to his prayer about what to do, arguing that the best thing to do as a Christian nation, as a Christian president, is to provide resources to civilize and educate the Filipinos and prepare them for independence at a later time. So that's an example of the idea of an American president's faith directly shaping foreign policy. But Curtis says McKinley's approach was not entirely successful or without controversy. The outcome was many, many decades of terrible warfare in the Philippines and the Philippines arguing that they had asserted their autonomy and declared the Philippine Republic that the United States failed to recognize. And so it's not resolved for a very long time. It's not that McKinley's vision or that vision also wasn't challenged. I mean, there are definitely both Christian anti-imperialist figures as well as the anti-imperialist league that involved people arguing that this was not the way the United States should be. There's a Catholic bishop who wrote a famous piece called Empire or Republic. Is the United States going to be an empire or is it going to be a republic? This question of how the United States should express its Christian character persists as America entered the 20th century. Curtis talks about another example of a president's personal faith impacting foreign policy, Woodrow Wilson's southern brand of Presbyterianism. There's a fantastic biography of Woodrow Wilson by a colleague named Kara Burnage, who talks about specifically about how Wilson's religious upbringing influenced his vision for the United Nations, his vision for the way the United States would again act on the world stage after World War I. And that comes out of his being influenced by his sense of 
his Southern Presbyterian upbringing. And she actually very interestingly also ties this to way that Wilson is criticized for his failure and actually his rollbacks of integration during his period and the way he treats African Americans. She looks at the way Wilson's upbringing within this church that prized education of elites and sort of gave elite Southern Presbyterians a, a real role in maintaining order in society. Woodrow Wilson takes this vision and transposes it onto the world and sees the United States as projecting these values that are, are going to shape world peace after the First World War that the United States had a role to play in creating a League of Nations that would carry forward the, a hard-won peace in World War I. That was informed by his understanding of the importance of self-determinations of peoples, and that comes out of his background and vision. Ultimately, the League of Nations, the United States, fails to ratify its participation, so it was a failure of his policy in a sense. But Certainly, his the way that he frames the U.S. participation or hoped for participation league, as well as previously in World War One, has to do with his sense that it's the United States' role um, as a leader in the world to carry forward important values onto the world stage and to fight again against tyranny, against godlessness. Almost a hundred years later, a different branch of Christians enjoy political influence. Former President Trump was buoyed by conservative white evangelicals, though his own religiosity is often called into question. I mean, one of the things that has been publicized about his own personal faith in terms of lack of religious literacy of the Bible, he does come out of a particular tradition within Protestantism. And although he identifies as Presbyterian, the faith that he was shaped in was that his father's pastor was famous New York City pastor named Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale is famous for writing a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, which is a strain of religiosity that values sort of human will and human agency, human thinking to shape reality. And so the idea is if you think positively about something, good things will happen to you. If you declare something to be true, that will shape the reality for truth. So his own personal faith does actually have some specific religious and theological content. But today, the U.S. is a religiously diverse country of Christians and non-Christians, with Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, and many, many more, all contributing to American religious life. Add to that fact that a quarter of the country does not affiliate with any religious tradition. It begs the question, does having a Christian president matter anymore? Might this idea of America as a Christian nation no longer hold? I think, again, going back to the early founding, many state constitutions did have religious tests early on that you had to believe in the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in Pennsylvania, for example. So Jews were excluded from holding political office. But my students often observe that while it's true that there's no religious test, the fact is that many presidents have had to, in some ways, affirm their Christianity, their Protestantism. Take former President Barack Obama a Christian who was targeted by a campaign to convince the public that he is a secret Muslim. Curtis offers another example from the 2012 election. This was when Mitt Romney, who is a Mormon candidate for president, gave a big speech talking about how his Mormon faith is part of Christianity and explaining it to an American public. 
So there still is a sense, at least from my students, that this is an informal test that presidents still need to pass. And so that tells us something, even though we have a separation of church and state legally, that there is still this lingering sense of the importance of Christianity at the highest levels. That was Heather Curtis, chair and associate professor of the Department of Religion at Tufts University and author of Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid. Coming up next, we'll take a deeper dive into the surprising faith of one of the earliest presidents of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. This is Inspired. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Umbreen Khan. We've been talking about the Founding Fathers, mostly in relationship to Christianity. But what about their views of other religions? What do we know, for example, about Thomas Jefferson and his Quran? That's right, his Quran. The author of the Declaration of Independence bought a translation of the central text of Islam for his own library. This begs the question. What did he and the other founding fathers think about Islam and its practitioners? We talked to Denise Spellberg, a historian at the University of Texas at Austin, about her book, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, Islam, and the Founders. I asked her, first off, what did Thomas Jefferson believe? Many historians have devoted themselves to trying to define Jefferson's spiritual life and his belief system. He was born into the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which makes it interesting, really, that he saw the plight of others who, because they weren't part of the established religion, were either persecuted, were persecuted and couldn't participate. Um, Over time, it's fair to say that he was labeled a deist, that is, someone who saw God as more remote, but he never officially renounced his Anglican Uh, affiliation. He did, however, by the time he met Joseph Priestley, the scientist and advocate for Unitarianism, begin to take that form of expression, a religious expression, seriously. We think while Jefferson was still in the White House, maybe around 1804 or so, he began the process of actively reviewing the New Testament and taking a razor to the parts that he thought wouldn't hold up to a rational test. So he actually excised from the New Testament the miraculous, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, the virgin birth. He started doing that while president, and he continued to do it after his presidency in 1819 and 20. And the result is... You know, it wasn't ever published as a book. He didn't publicly talk about it. But he corresponded with Priestley and others about this. Jefferson also wrongly predicted that eventually, because Unitarianism basically emphasized the oneness of God and got rid of the Trinity, that it would become the overwhelming faith of the United States. Well, that didn't happen. But what we are left with today, and you can order it now uh, from Amazon, are essentially Jefferson's view of the Bible 
Um, and it's, it's known today as the Jefferson Bible, but it wasn't something he made public or talked to at large. So he was, he was let's say, an ethical Christian. Uh, in part, his deism and Unitarianism uh, informed him to make principal choices that also, uh, in his day, caused other Christians to think that he just wasn't Christian enough. He wasn't orthodox enough in his practice. But here was a man thinking about religion really from his student days when he ordered a Quran in 1765 from England uh, to the end of his life when he had taken on the New Testament to try and create a version he could attest to. That's a really that's a really interesting um, that's an interesting portrait of Jefferson, a very deeply personal one, and he sounds like someone who's extraordinarily uh, curious or at least willing to wrestle with uh, traditions or questions and ideas. Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about. You just said that he purchased a Quran. Why did he do that? Do, what do we know about why he he sought to possess or to own a Quran? Well, I think, you know, I think your point about him wrestling with the idea of religion and the idea of God and, uh, and, and what a moral life was, he saw Jesus certainly as a moral exemplar, is a through line in his life. In 1765, when he bought that Quran, he was in his 20s and a law student in Williamsburg, Virginia. And we have the record that he purchased the Quran because the Williams, Williamsburg newspaper served as the local bookseller. So they made a note, and it literally says, Jefferson sales Quran. George Sale was the <laughs> translator. And he paid two pounds for it, which... Wow. Yeah, I mean, he was willing to invest. But if we look at the records of the books he was buying at the time, he was buying English poetry, he was buying Blackstone's commentaries on the law. Why? Because he was a law student. And it's likely that his interest in the Quran stemmed from the fact that this particular translation by George Sale, an Anglican, uh, who did it in 1734, straight from the Arabic to English, a first, was the best translation of the Quran then available. And it was a publishing sensation for the time. It went through many editions, uh, both in Europe and in England. And, and Jefferson, as a student of law, would have seen the Quran as a book of law rather than a book of revelation. And I should add that the translation Jefferson bought has a 200-page preliminary discourse in which the author, in a very even-handed way for his time, laid out what Islam is as a ritual, how it, in fact, does inform law. He had genealogies of the prophet in there that you can fold out. He had a map of the Kaaba, where Muslims are enjoined to worship once at least uh, during their lifetime. And if Jefferson read that, then he would have had really a very good insight about what it is that Muslims believed. And, and more interestingly, even than that, he would have gotten for the first time a more even-handed approach to the idea that Sale emphasizes rightly, the translator said, that the central doctrine of the Quran is the oneness of God. And Jefferson himself, of course, would come to focus on that particular definition 
when he grew to embrace Unitarianism. You described how when he went through the Bible with a razor and he was excising portions of it, how what do we know about how he read the Quran? Were there, are there notes that you have? Is there a record of how he understood and read the various stories, legalistic or parables that echoed stories from the New Testament and the Old Testament? Well, well, the possibilities you describe are precisely the kind of data that the research historian wants to find. <laughs> and I desperately wanted to find all of that. And what was particularly vexing is that I found almost none of it. Really? Uh, at, a t- at a time in the 1760s, um, when he is taking voluminous notes on people like Locke, he had a common book where he would note down his responses to whatever he was reading. And he did this frequently for important books. We don't have notes of his immediate reaction to the Quran. And that is desperately upsetting to me. But there may be a reason for that. What would the the reason reason be? Well, he bought it in 1765. Five years later, there's a fire at one of his plantations. And he writes to his dear friend that he has lost almost every book and all of his papers. Wow. Now, did he lose the Quran? That's an interesting question because we know that Jefferson's Quran is now in possession of the Library of Congress. Mm. So there are two possibilities. He does mention that he saved a book. Did he save the Quran? Or did it perish in the flames and he bought it later when he was in England on United States business, actually talking to a Muslim ambassador there? And then he picked up a second version of Sales Quran. We certainly know he brought it back with him. Have you seen it? Did you actually get a chance to examine the Quran? Yeah, it was one of the thrills of my life, I have to say. Um, I All you need to do, if it's not on display, and it frequently is, of course, now, um, all you need to do is get a library card, um, and you can do that relatively quickly for the Library of Congress, and then there's a call number. You go to the Rare Books reading room. It's in two volumes, this edition of his, and they will bring it to you. Parts of it are crumbling and yellow, Wow! but you can sit with it and look at it. And I was never so astonished because, of course, it's our national treasure. And, of course, it was the book on which our first Muslim congressman, Keith Ellison, swore his private oath of office on in 2007. Dr. Spelberg, what were the beliefs in our country at that time about Muslims? Were Jefferson's beliefs shared by others? Jefferson represented a minority voice for inclusion and what today we would term religious pluralism that that would have included Muslims and Jews and Catholics. At the time, the majority view among a majority of Protestants who were American is that America should be Protestant in some way. Now, Protestants among themselves, there was a lot of debate about which sect of Protestantism should be the established religion. And it's more about Protestants not being at each other's throats that we have this legislation, for example, banning a religious test in the Constitution. 
and ordering free exercise and that there not be a state-established religion. That's because the Protestant majority mostly couldn't decide among themselves. And so seeming to extend equal rights to all Protestants was part of the process. But amidst those debates, there were people like Jefferson who made universal arguments for inclusion of non-Protestants, including Catholics, Jews, and Muslims. And he wasn't alone. Jefferson wasn't alone. Madison was right there with him. And even George Washington talked about the fact that when he needed laborers, he said, I don't care what their religion is. I don't care where they come from, as long as their work is good. Did Jefferson know any Muslims? I'm curious. Well, he met Muslims. He met the Muslim ambassador from Tripoli and London personally and negotiated with him about our shipping in the Mediterranean, he and John Adams. And was he aware of the religious beliefs of many who were captured, imprisoned, and enslaved and sold in the United States who were followers of Islam or known as Mohammedans as they were back then? Yeah, an excellent question and a deeply tragic contradiction. He was writing about equality and inclusion for Muslims in a theoretical way, seemingly. He doesn't seem to have recognized, although we may find out more about this, that there were perhaps 10 to 15 percent of the enslaved West African population who were practitioners of Islam. Jefferson is writing for a future in which Muslims are conceived as citizens who are white. Because in 1790, the first immigration law said that you had to be free and white. Mm -hmm. So this would have excluded persons who were Muslim, even on his own plantation. He may well have owned a Muslim slaves with Muslim heritage and not known that. It's interesting to say also that Washington... George Washington, we know, did own slaves who were Muslim, largely because of their names. And two of the names recorded in Washington's tax lists are Fatima or Fatima and Little Fatima, the name of the prophet's daughter. So we presume they were probably of Muslim heritage. So here's the irony. Jefferson thinks that people of all religions, including Muslims explicitly, should have civil rights. But he doesn't realize the contradiction. He is, in fact, a slave owner and someone who denigrates blacks in his notes on Virginia. And although he tried early on to abolish the slave trade in the Declaration of Independence, that paragraph didn't survive the cut. So on the one hand, he's a champion of Muslim freedom. On the other, he's potentially the owner of Muslim slaves. And in fact... His ambit of freedom, religious freedom, doesn't extend to slaves. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are. If Jefferson were here today, what would he think of the Islamophobia that many Muslims in America grapple with and the the Islamophobia that has become such a feature in so many political campaigns and many going as far as encouraging religious tests for holding higher office? What do you think Jefferson would think today? I think Jefferson would think that 
he, in fact, would be pleased to see Muslims represented in Congress. We have three now, but across the country, there are Muslims who have run for and won local and state offices. I think that would please him. I think that would be the almost perfect end to his prediction of <clears throat> inclusion for Muslims. But I think it would have taken some reckoning for him to understand that those Muslims were of African, African-American, uh, or female uh, incarnations. I think that would have brought him up short. You know, he didn't include women mm-hmm. in the mix when he was talking about Muslims. And he surely didn't think about Muslims as black and in the same sort of notion of citizenship or religious equality or rights for them. But we've lived to see that day. Thomas Jefferson got part of it right. He got right the principle that religious freedom must be extended to everyone. And with that goes political equality. What he got wrong was race. But what he got right was a a blueprint for religious pluralism that explicitly included Muslims. It gave us a template to do better and to be even more inclusive and specific regarding race and gender. Dr. Spalberg, can I ask you a personal question? What what drew you into this area of study as a historian? What I noticed is that the books that had been written about American views of Islam in, in the early part of our country's history were written by American historians who didn't have background in Islamic history. And that the predominantly negative views of Islam and Muslims from the 18th and 19th centuries were just repeated by these historians without interrogating them. And without attempting to find, I think, the exception to a dominant negative paradigm. And I began to find Jefferson and others making statements about the inclusion and the rights of Muslims. And I traced that arc back to Europe, and I found exceptions to the rule and a blueprint for American pluralism that includes Muslims that I didn't expect to find, but it was there. And I think part of the reason others didn't find it earlier is because they actually didn't look for it. There's a tendency when you hear the negativity today or when you look at the documents from the 18th and 19th centuries, to see all of it as a pattern with no exceptions, with no qualification, with no nuance. And the job of the historian is to try to read every page and find that nuance. That was Denise Spellberg, a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of Jefferson's Quran, Islam and the Founder. That's all for this week's episode. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or using the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find our show. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Our closing music is by Audio Binger. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Lauren Marco. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. 
I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, friends, remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. Thank you.